you don't kill them and the little giant is eating fish sticks, Uh Ben. I'm Ben McKenzie, and not Elizabeth Flux. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month, we will be reading Thud, but a little later than usual. So in this special bonus episode, I'm playing Thud, the board game, with our guest, academic and professional board game nerd, Dr. Melissa Rogerson. Welcome, Melissa. Hey, Ben. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I am so pleased to know a professional board game nerd. (laughs) I'm so pleased to be a professional board game nerd. I think that's the best job description I've had. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's very apt, but if you were to try and encapsulate what that means, how would you describe what you do to somebody? So, I mean, I research board games, so I'm actually paid by the University of Melbourne as an academic to do my research, and my research is about board games. So I've kind of living the dream there. I've managed to turn board gaming into my career. But for years before I went to the university, people said to me, oh, I thought you just got paid to go around and talk to people about board games. So maybe maybe there was this kind of plan all along that I was building <laughs> towards that. <laughs> you had it in mind all along. Um, one of the things that you have done as a professional board game nerd has been in charge of a massive board game collection, not just your own, which is it's pretty good. I've seen pictures. <laughs> um, but you managed the board game collection for PAX Australia for a while? That's right. So I looked after sort of right from the first PAX where they brought me in to look after the board game library, which was begged, borrowed and probably not stolen, um, from <laughs> from various people. We had great support from a club in Queensland and a club in Canberra of lending us games, uh, which meant that that first year in PAX, I don't know if you remember, but Tabletop at PAX Australia was in the big top at the showgrounds. It was literally in a tent. <laughs> and the last night of PAX, we were sitting there until about one thirty counting pieces to make sure that all of the board games that we had borrowed from people were complete. And many of us kind of couldn't feel our fingers by the end of that process. It was pretty scary. Yeah, that's intense. Scrabbling Mm. around on the floor of a tent looking for those missing (laughs) little meeples and cubes and things. Yeah. Um, But you've also done some board game work. You've worked as a translator for board games. Yeah, that's right. So I started off just just being a nerd um, and (laughs) translating them on my own. And then then I reached out to a company and and I said, hey, you know, you haven't got a translator yet. You haven't got a translated version. I really want to play this game and my friends really want to play this game. So they've asked me whether I would translate it. Will you send me a copy of the game if I translate it? And they were like, um, yeah, sure. Now that game was Agricola. <laughs> so that's got 
rather a lot of translating. And I can remember sitting sitting at Brunswick Baths while my daughter was doing kind of school holiday programs, yeah. translating cards, trying to work out how many different words for butcher <laughs> I could come up with um, because, you know, they had, they had different kind of dialect words, the North German word, the South German word, and I ended up with, I think, butcher and meat seller. Um, and then doing research on... What's the little spiky thing called that you stick in the ground when you want to plant your potatoes evenly? Turns out it's a potato dibber um, and five <laughs> different kinds of plows. Wow. So, you know, you learn a lot from playing games. Yeah, wow. I, I mean, look, I, I, you are responsible for uh, one of my friend's favourite games, a big <laughs> Agricola player. Hello, Anna, if you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, we're here to discuss, uh, obviously, a particular game. And it's a game that exists not only in our world, which as Pratchett fans, we often refer to as round world, <laughs> uh, but on the disc world, the world of Terry Pratchett's novels. And that game is Thud. It's not the only game that's been invented that exists in that fictional world. Um, but I think it's safe to say that apart from the card game Cripple Mr. Onion, <laughs> which <laughs> which plays like some sort of weird cross between poker and uh, I don't know, Euchre and like, I think it's a trick taking. I have read there is a set of rules you can play it with, but you need eight different suits of cards. So you need to either combine two, like a French and what's the other one? The Italian, uh, with the different yeah, suits. Yeah. Yeah. You need two identical backed sets of cards with the different suits on them. Or, uh, there is a company that sells a deck, which is sort of intended to be used for Cripple Mr. Onion, which we have bought. It's, it's got four extra suits. That they made up. They're called like doves and uh, I can't even remember what they're called. Spock now. lizard dynamite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yes, but this is not that one. There's a, there is another one which is called Assassin's Chess, which is basically a chess variant with two extra rows of spaces at each side of the board called the slurks. And you can move the assassin through those spaces and you count how many spaces you've moved them in the slurks. And then at any point they can move onto the board counting that many spaces as if they've been moving secretly the whole time. It's Which sounds like a lot of accounting to do, but that seems like a thing assassins would do. So <laughs> it makes sense to me. Anyway, so those are the other ones that exist in the Discworld. There's probably a few others. Don't write in if I've forgotten one. <laughs> but this one is Thud. And uh, we will be discussing, as I said in the intro, the book that features this game most heavily, which is also called Thud, in our next major episode. But the game actually predates the novel. Uh, it was invented in 2001, 2002. It was first published in 2002 by a guy named Trevor Truran, and we'll come back to him. But we should talk, let's describe the game first, Melissa. If you were going to use your, your fancy knowledge of board <laughs> games, what, how would you describe what kind of a game that is, in technical terms, maybe? Oh, okay. With. So not the kind of game where I beat Ben. <laughs> Well, that is also accurate. I'll be 100% transparent. I've I've only played – now, I should say I am an amateur thud player. I do own a copy. I've played it exactly twice and I've lost both times. So, listeners, uh, take with a grain of salt anything I say. I won't be talking much about strategy today. Um, or if and, I do, don't don't emulate me. And and I, I think that there was a large amount of luck in me defeating Ben, this being the first time that I've played thud so please don't take anything i say seriously either <laughs> uh yeah so we are we are noobs but um but you know we we got into it we got into the spirit of the thing yeah uh, but yeah how would you describe the game so it's an asymmetric game 
of two different teams mm. that are playing against one another and those teams have different goals, I suppose similar goals, right, destroy the other team, mm. but different ways of moving, different ways of capturing one another. And it's got those really strong roots to the table games or tafel games that we know from kind of the early common era, I suppose, about from the, about the fourth century onwards, there seems oh. to be evidence of, of table games. I knew they were old. I didn't know they were quite that old. Ah, oh, they're young, right? I mean, they're, <laughs> well, that's yes. 900 years after games like the Royal Game of Ur, right? And Senate. So, mm. you know. Which is a, and the Royal Game of Ur, you, that, you don't have dice in that, do you? You just choose how many spaces you're going to have? Oh, I can't remember I how can it works. I can never remember exactly how I think that there works. There is a dice, actually. There, but maybe there, not. there might be a die, but it's, it's definitely, it's a race game, right? So that's, yeah. that's a very early race game. This is a different style of game and those table games where you're kind of moving around the board play out very differently. Yeah. And so it's, it's a strategy game and it's for two players only. So it's a little bit like chess. And the board looks a bit like a chessboard, but of course it's the disc world, so it doesn't have a square four-sided shape. It's an eight-sided board. I mean, I've seen pictures of when they were showing it off. They did take it to, um, I don't know if they took it to Essen, but they took it to a couple of the big board game shows mm-hmm. back when it was first coming out about 20 years ago. And they did have a fancy wooden octagonal oh, board. Oh, lovely. Which was nice. But the commercial versions all come with a square board that just has the corners sort of with a decoration. Mm. Um, and we're playing the second edition of the game, which is uh, which we'll come back to. I yeah. think we'll, we'll talk about that. One of the interesting things about games like this, I think, is that they have that double audience as well. So they have to be doubly good. Mm. Um because they have to appeal to fans of the books who are going to fall on them like ravenous <laughs> trolls if they get something wrong. Yes, yes. Um, but they also need to appeal to people who like board games, who are going to be very critical of the play style. And there's kind of this this interesting balance between people who like board games and have never read any Pratchett mm. and people who've read every Pratchett multiple times and don't really like board games. So you need those kind of simple but emergent rules to get interesting things happening in the game and still kind of be be a bit true to the stories as well. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, you see a lot of games, particularly nowadays where, you know, you have the Kickstarter explosion and everybody and their dog, it seems, sometimes is getting a, a license for some um, popular thing and turning it into a board game. And some of them are great and some of them are not so <laughs> great and some of them sort of fall somewhere in the middle. And that is one of the big tensions. Yeah. Is it does it feel like the source material? Like, does it give you an experience that feels like you're a character in that world or meeting those characters? And or is it a good game? Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I think the one that leaps to mind is actually one I haven't played, but I've heard so many people say the same thing about it, which is the Firefly board game, mm-hmm. which has all the stuff from the TV show Firefly, which is sort of a space western if you're not familiar with it. And the show's quite short because it got cancelled halfway through a season. <laughs> so there's only so many things in the TV show and you just encounter the same things over and over and over again, <laughs> uh, which seems a bit a bit much. Yeah, whereas compare that to something like Battlestar Galactica, mm. which is such a rich kind of based on the modern series, of course, not the not the earlier series, but the game itself is so very, very rich and you really have that kind of tension of feeling, are you a Cylon, you know, are you secretly a robot mm. um, or are you a human player? Are we really working together? 
so that's one where they've, I think, done a really good job of implementing that story. Yeah, I agree. That's one of my favourites. It's one of those those social deduction style games where someone's secretly a traitor. But the, the beautiful part about it, and I don't think any other game had done this before that one, is sometimes you don't find out you're secretly a traitor until halfway through the game, <laughs> which, is, which is very true to how things happen in the TV show. And I will say no more. I don't want to spoil anyone. But I think, you know, the interesting thing about Thud is unlike the other Discworld games that exist, which do try to put you in the world of the Discworld, but you're clearly playing a board game, this is an in-universe artifact. This is a game that characters in the world of the fiction do play. Absolutely. And it's a really simple game. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so successful Mm -hmm. because the more rules, the more hints there are in the universe about what happens in the game, about strange things that happen in the game, the harder it becomes to actually play. For me, the most fascinating thing about it is that it existed in the real world before it existed in the fiction. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how that works, to be honest. Well, (laughs) um, so uh, Terry Pratchett did write a sort of fictional history of the game. Mm. It's quite short. It goes by a couple of names in its original form and in the collection A Blink at the Screen. It's called Thud, A Historical Perspective. And what's its other name, Ben? The uh, very long one. Uh, do you mean the name of the game or the name of the thing that Terry Pratchett wrote? I Well, I wrote down the name, the very long name of the game. Oh, yeah. Do you want me to try and say it? I would it? love you to try and say it. So this is the fictional name of the game in presumably Dwarfish, although most other Dwarfish sounds like Tolkien Dwarfish and this sounds more like Old Norse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he called it, uh, and I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before because it did come <laughs> up in a book, but Naffle, Baffle, Swiffle, Wiffle, Taffle. Uh, <laughs> that's how I would pronounce that. I don't know that that's at all accurate, which is playing on those Taffle games or Naffle, Taffle games that you were talking about earlier, the sort of old school Viking I mean, I say Viking in inverted commas, but Vikings did play them, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Or that's what we think, right? Yeah. Lacking time machines. <laughs> we have to make we some assumptions. We can't check it out. But. but yeah, he wrote this fictional history of the game about the dwarf who invented it and uh, the reward that he demanded from the king <laughs> who commissioned him. And it's a classic Pratchetty mashup of different bits of folklore. So he invents this game at the behest of the low king of the dwarves because it's a game that will teach dwarves to be good strategists, particularly against trolls, because you do play as trolls versus dwarves in the game. And he asks for a reward when the king is pleased of just, oh, just put like one coin on the first square and then two coins on the second one and then four coins on the third one. And the king's like, okay, that doesn't sound like too much money. But he quickly works out that's more gold than exists in the universe. <laughs> so he uh, he calls him some rude names and says, you better revise your offer there, Sonny Jim. And he's like, okay, um, I'll just take as much gold as I can carry. And the Dwarf King says, no problem, and breaks one of his arms, <laughs> which is a very Pratchetty take on those kind of folk tales. But it is a game invented in the world of the Discworld by dwarves, or dwarfs, I should say. And, yeah, it occupies that sort of weird space. But it, he says in the introduction to this in the collection that he often would get approached by people saying, we want to make a Discworld board game. And he often felt that they were not very good ideas or they weren't very Discworldy. So he didn't really want to say yes. But this guy, Trevor Truran, came to him who was a puzzle and games maker and had been for quite some time. He became a full-time puzzle designer in the 1980s. And he had this idea because he was a mathematician and a maths teacher. And so he wanted to make an abstract kind of game, but theme it around the Discworld and dwarfs versus trolls. And Pratchett liked it. And he actually said one of the things he didn't ask for 
but which was in the game that he really liked was that you have to play twice. You have to play as the dwarfs and the trolls, and then you get a score from each game and you add them together and that's how you determine who won. And that's a really satisfying way to play one of these asymmetric games as well. It removes perhaps some of the need for the game to be exactly balanced. Mm. It doesn't matter if the dwarfs are slightly better than the trolls or the trolls are slightly better than the dwarfs as they were in our game Mm. because you're going to play twice. So it's actually about maximising how well you play whichever group you're playing with or as. Yeah, Mm. yeah. And one of the other unique things too is that the game only ends on each one of those rounds when both players agree that it ends. Mm. Is, are there other games that have that as an end condition? Because I've certainly not played any that end that way. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, obviously, you've got things like chess. Mm. Um, chess is a game that I find really interesting because of the number of kind of top-level players who resign. Mm. Um, so I don't think that that's something that is widely seen I've always been taught, you know, that being a good sport means playing a game out until kind of the bitter end. <laughs> yeah. um, but actually those top chess players are like, no, I've lost, I can't win, it's over. And actually calling a game early is something that, that feels really kind of a little bit uncomfortable to me. And, of mm. course, when we played, that was what we ended up doing with our second game yeah. um, where we felt that we could probably keep playing but honestly, it might have been as long as the whole game up to that point mm. and it wasn't really going to get us anywhere. It wasn't going to change the result. So it was easier to just call it. But I still have this kind of sneaking suspicion that that feels kind of cheaty to me. I yeah. have this bad feeling <laughs> that I didn't play it properly. <laughs> well, it's, the wording in the rules is slightly ambiguous, isn't it? Because it says uh, the game ends when both players agree that no more captures can be made, which could mean you have to play until it's an actual stalemate where no one can possibly make another capture, or it means like you just agree that look, we could just play forever if we wanted to until someone makes a mistake, let's just call it. And I think that's sort of how we interpreted it. Yeah, yeah. And it is that that interesting thing of, well, you shouldn't be able to take any more pieces, but if I make a mistake, you'll be able to. I probably shouldn't be able to take any more pieces, but maybe I can. Mm. But do we really want to put that much time into it? Very enjoyable game. Wouldn't have been enjoyable if we'd played for another hour and a half trying to desperately chase those pieces, you know, where you get into that position. I can remember this playing Ludo with my daughter when she was little where where she would trade a bedtime story for a game of Ludo, but then the game of Ludo would go on for like 45 minutes and you'd be cheating just to lose your pieces so Mm. that she could win so (laughs) that we could just finally, finally go to bed. Yeah, yeah. It's that kind of, uh, I mean, sometimes if I'm, as I have sometimes taught game design in in some way or another to people, I talk about this sort of spectrum of games between luck and skill. And I mean, obviously, you know, you don't have to be one or the other. You can be a mixture of both. But there are games that are entirely one or the other. Like, you know, the classic example being uh, Snakes and Ladders is entirely luck-based. There is nothing you can do to influence your (laughs) winning or losing. It's all about what number you roll in the dice. Although I think you are more likely to win if you go first, I can't or, or not first. I can't remember. There's- it's it's the point of the game though. Is literally that it is pure luck, yeah, and that's kind of embedded in that game as a cultural artifact. Mm. But yeah, that thing. This is really a pure skill game. You know, the yeah. only luck is about 
how good or how bad your opponent is yeah. and that counts as skill, right? Yeah, yeah. Chess is the same. Obviously, there's no randomization in chess apart from who goes first. And I, I think, I, I mean, I'm not a good enough chess player to know off the top of my head if going first gives you an advantage. But because you play both sides in this game and the dwarfs always go first, you both get a chance at going first. So, again, it's completely balanced as well. Mm. Yeah. So I, I really, I really liked that about the game. <laughs> I guess we should describe the rules a little bit more, just so mm. that everyone listening is on the same page. Because I do know that there's a, a lot of listeners who've never played. So you have this octagonal board. There's one piece called the Thud Stone, which goes right in the middle on the center square. It doesn't move. It doesn't do anything except get in the way. You have eight troll pieces for the troll side that start out adjacent to the central stone. And then you have, uh, I forget how many troll, how many dwarfs it is, but it's, it's 32. 32 dwarfs, thank you, around the edge of the board. If you have played chess, it's a handy sort of reference because the trolls play uh, or move a bit like a king, so they can only just move one space uh, in but any direction. In any direction, yeah. And then the dwarfs move a bit like a queen, so they can move in any direction as many spaces as they want in a straight line. So though that's pretty straightforward. It's where the capturing comes in that gets a little <laughs> more complicated because for the trolls it's pretty easy, but unlike, say, in checkers where, you know, you move a piece over the top of another piece to take it or in chess where you sort of put it on the square of the piece you want to take, to capture dwarf pieces in thud with a troll, you have to move the troll so that it ends up in a square orthogonally or diagonally adjacent to those pieces. And it can take as many dwarfs as you can get it next to in one move. So that's that's the basic way trolls wander around the map thumping dwarves on the head with their clubs. Ben's acting that out now. You can't see it, <laughs> it's but very, it's quite lovely. <laughs> it's a very visual podcast today. Um, so that's the trolls. But then the dwarfs and the trolls can also shove each other, which involves lining up several pieces in a row. And then you can shove the one on the front of a line, a number of spaces forward, equal to the number of pieces in the line. So if you've got three trolls in a row, you can shove a troll piece, the first one, three spaces forward to end up next to some dwarfs and take them. Dwarfs can do the same thing, and this is the only way they can capture, but they have to land on the space where the troll is, and then they can only take the one troll piece at a time. So it's tricky to take trolls, and the rule book actually does give some advice, which is form a kind of block with your dwarfs, which will help you. Um, that didn't work for either of us. No, but then we are not thud masters, you know, <laughs> we're still learning the game. Uh, I feel like there is, there's some real strategies to forming that block of dwarfs because the advantage of that, if you, I mean, we're just describing the game to you and if you've never played it, it might not be apparent, but if you have a bunch of dwarfs all close to each other, then they're forming lines that face in several different directions. So it's difficult for the trolls to get close to you without you being able to take at least one of them. But that is quite hard because your dwarfs start all spread out around the edges of the board and you have to kind of bring them together. I managed to get a little block in our second game. Very um, early. Quite early. And I did manage to take one or two trolls then, but you quite handily demolished that block. <laughs> uh, you, there was well, some good moves yeah. on your part, I thought. My trolls swung in and and <laughs> took out tasty dwarf cabana. <laughs> they did. You're convinced that they eat the dwarfs. I I mean I understand where this comes from. You referring to another game? What was that game you referred to? While we were playing with the giants and the children oh, and the I'm, igloos. <laughs> so we've got this game called Igloo Pop, which is an old oldish game now. But um, you have 15 igloos 
and each igloo has a different number of beads in there. So one has one bead, one has two, all the way up to 15. And the game involves picking up the igloos and shaking them to decide how many beads are inside and then betting on how many beads are inside each igloo. And the story of the game is that the little giant's gone out to buy fish sticks and he's found the children and the children want to play. So the children are all inside the igloos and he's shaking the igloos to find them. And I'm sorry to disappoint anyone, but he has eaten those children. Oh, 100%. I mean, if there's anything that defines the giants of folklore, it's that they (laughs) like eating people. Uh, That's really one of their main pastimes. But yeah, look, I think like that game, which has a bit of a story around it, but it's quite an abstract game, which is an interesting term and not all listeners might know what that means. So what is an abstract board game? What does that mean? So an abstract game is a game where there isn't really a story to the game. Chess is an interesting one. We all know that chess was originally about a war and there was a king and there was a queen, but you're not really telling a story when you're playing chess. You're moving pieces. And so a game where the story is really non-essential to the game, I suppose, is a nice way to think about an abstract. And they're very often two-player games. I don't think they have to be, but very, very often they're two-player and they might have that element of um, asynchronicity. So, so you know, um, where we're we're able to take slightly different actions on our turn or where different pieces can take different actions as well. Mm. Um, and, and so where, where with other games, you might feel like you're telling a story. Um, these games are very much skill based. You know, you were talking about that, that spectrum before, mm. very much about skill. There's typically little or no luck in an abstract game. And, um, yeah, you're not, you're not telling a story. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're, you're playing a game with, with, mechanisms that are kind of front and centre. And the kind of flip side to that or the opposite of that is a thematic game is the term that we use, which means a game that, that heavily interacts with some kind of narrative or story. Yeah, and and there's all sorts of stuff going on in the background mm-hmm. with with the idea of thematic games, right? Yeah. Um, but in a game like Thud, right, it doesn't actually matter whether we're trolls and dwarfs or whether we're cats and dogs or whether we're mice and giraffes. Yeah. You know, we're just we're just moving. Bees around. and wasps. Although yeah. Although interestingly, we kind of played with the theme. We played with that idea mm. of being dwarfs and being trolls and especially and there may have been a little bit of trash talking going on while yeah. we were yeah. while we were playing the game. <laughs> And and it was very much related to being a troll or being a dwarf. Yeah, and I think that probably relates to the unique origins of this game where while it wasn't a fictional, I mean, because there have been games in, in more recent times where, that have been invented for fiction, either in novels or films or TV shows that have been described vaguely and then someone said, oh, we could make that as an actual game. I mean, I think my favourite one actually comes not even from a narrative, but uh, there's a game called The Illimat which they made up a thing that looked like a game for a photo shoot for a album cover for the Decemberists, the yes. band. And then they got in touch with some game designers and went, this actually looks kind of cool. Do you think you could turn this into a real game? And they did, and it's really good. It's, yeah. it's quite weird, but that suits the, the, the sort of theme. So that's probably my favourite one. But this one, 
you know, Terry Pratchett hadn't invented the game of thud for Discworld. He had a particular relationship between trolls and dwarves. And yeah, this guy, <laughs> Trevor, was like, I want to make this. And apparently it came about because he met Bernard Pearson, who goes or used to go by the the cunning artificer was his sort of name. And he had a company called Clearcraft. And he had met Terry Pratchett and started making little miniatures. And Trevor met him at a convention or somewhere and then was like, oh, that's a cool idea. Why don't I make a, a Discworld game? <laughs> so when he was designing it, clearly he was trying to make rules that would make it feel like dwarfs and trolls. And that's a big thing with games too. What, how, how do you describe that? Like the way that the rules and the narrative interact with each other? I'm sure that there's a word for it, which I have just completely forgotten. Is it ludonarrative something or other? Synergy? Synergy? Assonance? I don't know. Because I know people talk about ludonarrative dissonance, which is the idea when the rules and the theme of the game don't feel like they're mixed together. But you can have it the other way around. Absolutely. You You can have that match. One of the things that I like to ask when I'm playing a game or when I'm teaching a game, I like to try to start with the story and think about how does the story of this game support me teaching the rules of this game? This is a great one because there is that rich understanding of what those two, what do we call them, races, two, two groups. Species. Let's go species. species. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a better word. Um, So how they interact with one another and how they behave Without getting too bogged down mm. in a story that needs to be told, because once you have a story that needs to be told, there's often an expectation that things will play out in a particular way. Mm. And we were able to focus on troll hit dwarf, dwarf hit troll, mm. and that was enough for this game. Yeah. Yeah. And it does feel like as the dwarfs, I mean, dwarfs in fiction are not usually depicted as particularly speedy, but compared to big rocky trolls, <laughs> they're pretty fast. So, yeah, you can run around the board, you can move as far as you want, but you can't really just attack a troll. You have to gang up on a troll to get rid of one, whereas the troll can just turn up and flatten as many as, you know, five. I think I think the best move I did was like five. Yeah. Did I get five? I got four. I think four. you got five in one blow. But that was like your first ever game. I don't think you'd ever let that happen again. Oh, I'm, I'm not so sure. <laughs> But, yeah, they can just turn up and they just flatten all the dwarfs next to them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's – so it's quite a satisfying game and it do feel like – yeah, it feel it feels like something that you would play in a in a fantasy world. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it brings back those elements of the fantasy world as well. So I will say, you know, a little bit controversial, although not controversial in this room, I suspect, you know, I enjoyed playing that much more than I enjoyed playing chess for example, mm. and I enjoyed it because we had those stories to tell and we were building these little stories about our trolls and about um, what the dwarfs were doing and things. So so it was um, a very, very familiar environment. I enjoyed it much more. I, ben was saying, you know, you could make a copy of this game with all these different pieces. I, I'm a Eurogamer. I would make it with, you know, yellow cubes and red cubes <laughs> and I just don't think the game would be as much fun. <laughs> no. And the, the sculpts are, like, we haven't talked about the pieces, but they are quite glorious. In particular, like, the troll does look like the uh, Clearcraft miniature of Detritus, the um, sort of iconic troll character from the books, but, you know, in a sort of fairly static, like I've got holding my club pose. They are slightly too big for the squares on the board. <laughs> 
Um, but that's okay. As you were saying, that makes them look good when they when they gang up together. They they really kind of loom, and you get this sense of this trolley of trolls, you know, all all lined up one behind the other, waiting with their with their clubs all in line. There is some quite definite troll butt happening on some of the sculpts, which was you know a bit of a bit of a problem when they were facing away from me. I wasn't sure about that, but. Uh, uh, Each a, to their own. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, but I do also want to talk about the dwarf pieces, though, because they seem to have a pretty specific influence on their design. They, they reminded me of the Lewis chessmen. Very, very much. Combination of them and Gimli from the Lord <laughs> of the Rings movies. Yes. yes. Yeah. And I think uh, this edition, like I said, uh, we come back to this. This is the second edition that I own of the game. This is uh, It's also known as sometimes Coombe Valley Thud because it does include a separate set of rules for an alternate version of the game, which plays quite differently, uh, where the dwarfs are trying to move a rock up the other end of the valley <laughs> and the dwarfs are trying to get in the way. And you can still capture other pieces, but the movement and the capturing rules are quite different. But that was new for this edition, and this edition also has uh, Paul Kidby's cover artwork for the novel Thud on the cover, and it was released to coincide with the book, whereas the original edition came out three years before the book. And it wasn't mentioned in the novels until Going Postal was the first time uh, where Vetinari has a set in his office. A much, much more beautiful set than yes. the one we played with, I suspect. Yeah, no disrespect to this one, though. <laughs> uh, this is great. And there is a, a current edition which came out in, I think, 2009, uh, which is available in a cloth bag uh, with a cloth board, um, but has a different different looking pieces, I think. Mostly similar, but different. And then as I found out, there's a Dutch edition, a translation, which has totally different pieces, <laughs> but they still look like dwarfs and trolls, so they're not, they're not that different. Yeah. We should get on to some questions because we actually got quite a lot. I didn't expect we'd get many questions for this. <laughs> but is there anything else that you want to say about this game, Melissa? I think that I am very disappointed mm. that they didn't really make the board octagonal. Oh, yeah, I agree. I feel like that would have really – and I feel like maybe that is about the age of the game mm. as well, that we're seeing more kind of creative shapes of boards and interesting – kind of cutouts, but I do think that an octagonal board would have just maybe felt a little bit more, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of tempted to make one at some point and then put it on display at my house, <laughs> you know, and then people come around and go, what's that? I go, oh, we'll have a game. Because wow. it's pretty easy to learn the game, I think. We haven't talked about that. I, I think it would be difficult to master. But Pratchett does say that people who've played it a lot do say that it bends your mind in a way similar to advanced chess play. I think he even said it's like more difficult than chess, which maybe it is. I think trying to find new strategies with such a small number of rules is probably a little bit more difficult, but then people have been playing Thud for 20 years and they've been playing chess for, for I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that um, there are people who are particularly good at abstract gameplay mm. as well and – we're just scratching the surface. I mean, no offence to Ben, we're, but we are just scratching the surface of what is possible with this game. And I think that it's a game that would reward a few more plays, you know, that you could actually certainly on our second play, right, mm. where I was the Trolls, I had a better idea of the way that the pieces 
were moving and were able to move than I did in the first game. So I could kind of feel myself being ensmartened by playing the game, you know. <laughs> yes. And and I feel like there would be quite a short number of games that you would play where you would sort of feel like, okay, now I know how to play this game as opposed to now I'm exploring how to play this game. And I could see that continuing you know, but maybe not not with quite that sense of I am a better player now than I was at the end of the previous game. Yeah. I mean, look, even this being my second ever game, I feel like I did better than in the first games that I played uh, and I still lost. Uh, but I still, <laughs> I feel like I did, I did do better. So I do want to play it some more. I think that finding someone who wants to regularly play it will be the difficulty <laughs> because it's only two players. You know, there's only so much variety in it. So I think you, if you want to play it a lot, you're going to have to find someone who's into it. There are some online implementations of playing it. So maybe that might be a good way to practice. Although the original, when they first brought it out or, or early on, they did make an official website where you could play it online, um, which I thought was quite a bold move for 20 mm. years ago. Um, but there are some implementations now, individual ones, like you can just go to a you know, someone's website or download them. But also I think there's some in some of the online game playing portals. Like no doubt there's one for Tabletop Simulator or Tabletop. something. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's one so for that and, and there's, there's yeah, there's a few. Yeah. There was one thing that I noticed too because I did actually try to do some research before um, <laughs> before I came in because I'm not I'm not an archaeologist, right? I'm not a not an ancient board game specialist, not mm. a not a historian, which is um, I was I was just trying to read up a little bit on Nefertafel so that I could feel like I could talk about tafel games or table games competently. And I loved that um, something I saw was that the translation of Nefertafel mm. is literally fist table. <laughs> So I had this kind of vision, right, of movie Vikings, right, and movie Celts sitting around playing this game and kind of thumping the table after they play. And I feel like that actually works really well with the name Thud yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, they apparently the working title for the game was Coombe Valley because that's sort of mm-hmm. the event which was mentioned in the books which inspired the theme of the game. But I think, yeah, you're right, Thud sounds better. And it also, that's great because it makes me feel better about whenever I was a kid and someone absolutely trounced me at chess and I was like, I'm <laughs> thumping the table in frustration. I'm sure I did that once or twice. That was just your inner Viking or inner Celt talking. <laughs> well, I've got a little of both, so I feel that's appropriate. Um, shall we get on to some questions? Yeah, let's. Because uh, we've got some great ones. So first of all, Molokov, uh, Discord, sent us in a few. The first question was, did you play the game before the novel came out? I think that's a pretty easy one to answer. No. Well, um, I only played it for the first time today. So. <laughs> yeah, I actually got my copy um not I only got it about three years ago. I tried to get one in an auction at the Australian Discworld convention, <laughs> uh, but unfortunately that did not work for me. But then a friend of mine went and found me one on eBay and Marvelous. got me a copy, which was very nice of him. So, uh, yes, I'm <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Soren, if you're listening. Uh, I'm very, very appreciative and I will play it some more. But Markov also wanted to know, was it easy enough to understand the rules? It was really easy. Mm. Um, and it, something that I notice is I generally prefer to read rules rather than have them explained to me. Mm. Ben 
explain them to me today just before we started playing and it was really easy to understand what was involved. The one thing that we did do was we acted out that shoving move, Mm. that idea that if you've got three trolls in a line or three dwarfs in a line, the front one can move forward three spaces. And I'm a big fan of kind of using the pieces as part of that learning process. Um, But the rules are so simple that that was really the only thing that we needed to act out and we probably didn't even need to do that. No, but I think that is the one rule that is... I think if you played a lot of these abstract two-player games, like if you played a lot of chess or checkers or something like that, because it's very similar but not quite the same, that is maybe where you'd get caught up a little bit. But otherwise, I think I agree. They're very simple. So, yeah, we didn't have any trouble with that. Malkov also wants to know, have you ever won a half game as the Dwarfs? And uh, I think we can both say no today. (laughs) Um, But I can tell you that I have lost a half game as the Trolls (laughs) because I lost both of the games I played the first time I played as the Dwarfs and the Trolls. So it is possible to win as the Dwarfs (laughs) uh, to score more points. We did. I don't think we specified, but the point scoring works where once you've decided the game is over, you get a number of points based on how many pieces you have left. And each dwarf piece is worth one point and each troll piece is worth four points. And that's really simple maths. You start the game with eight trolls and 32 dwarfs on the board. So each troll is always worth four dwarfs. And and it makes the calculus – I found that really helpful because in chess – one of the things I always struggled with was figuring out when is an acceptable sacrifice. Like, obviously, Mm. it's always worth it to sacrifice a pawn to save a, a more powerful piece. But, you know, is it is it good to sacrifice a bishop for a rook or a – I don't know. I haven't played enough chess. Whereas this, it's like, well, a troll is four times as many points as a dwarf. So you really don't want to sacrifice a troll unless you can take at least, you know, three or four dwarfs with it first. Or disrupt a little dwarf phalanx that's yeah. building there, you know. I think that can be valuable. Yeah, but sacrifice is definitely a big part of the game, particularly mm. for the dwarf side. Like there's just no way, I don't think, to win – uh, unless you are sending dwarfs out on their own to get in the troll's way while you amass your little dwarf army ready to to get them. Yeah, and I'm not sure that's going to work either. Well, it's hard to know. You, you have to play it more to find off, out. Pick them off one by one, yeah. <laughs> now, I think we hopefully we've already given an impression of this answer, but Dave uh, on Instagram asked, it's kind of obvious, but is the game fun? And this is actually a good question because do games have to be fun? Is it? They don't have to be fun, but I won't want to play them if they're not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's um, a fair comment. And, and we were just talking about this before, you know, before we started. It's taken me a long time to come around to the idea that games don't have to be good and games don't have to be fun as long as they're better than the alternative. <laughs> but here, right, the alternative is going home and having a drink or, or reading a book or playing a game I really enjoy. So, mm. you know, how how did I find that? I actually really enjoyed it and I was really surprised because I don't generally like abstract games. Mm. I like my games to have a bit of a story to them. And this one didn't, but but we had that banter. We kind of had that building a bit of a story while we were playing as well, mm. um, which... Uh, which I really enjoyed. So it, it it wouldn't have been the case if we had been playing red versus blue, for example, but because we were playing trolls versus dwarfs, we could, you know, crank out a couple of stereotypes um, and have some fun with that. Yeah. 
I agree. And I think, yeah, cause it, cause you, you are looking at little dwarfs and little trolls. You're not looking at, you know, little red discs and green discs mm. or whatever. Um, that would be a terrible choice. Don't ever make a game with red and green, <laughs> otherwise identical pieces. Um, but yeah, you, cause you're looking at what looks like these little characters, but also what looks like a game that dwarfs and trolls would play. Yeah, it does sort of bring you into that mindset a little bit. Yeah, and the trolls are probably at least four times the size of the dwarfs yeah. as well. So you that that's something that feels – when I looked at it, I thought, oh, that's a bit of overkill. But actually it's really important to that sense of the game. You've got these big lumbering trolls that move slowly but they're enormous and these tiny little dwarfs that are kind of dashing around the board or trying to form themselves into groups so that they can take on – the trolls, and I think that that's something that was done really, really well. Yeah, I really like that as well. Viceroy919 asked via Reddit, in your games of Thud, have you experienced that either side, dwarfs or trolls, seems to be easier or have any advantages, or is it like they say in the book, it can go either way? I mean, we we both did much better as the trolls than as the dwarfs, but do you think that's because we're beginner players and that maybe if you get a bit more crafty, you could do just as well with the dwarf side? I do. I also think that coming in as, you know, a total noob, I was quite glad to start with the dwarfs. I found it easier to get that sense of, okay, I can kind of move all the way across the board and to feel like I was doing something, sadly it turned out I was doing something rubbish, but <laughs> but to feel like I was doing something moving across the board. Mm. We're playing as the trolls rightly feels much slower, feels much more incremental. Yeah, and it feels like your opponent can really see you coming from a mile away mm. because you're going one space at a time to line up your trolls in the right spot. Uh, so I, quite, I I enjoyed that. But I I would say that I think, as a beginner player, knowing what to do as the trolls is a bit more straightforward. And it, it took me watching you play as the dwarfs first to go, oh, I think I see what you've got to do here. And I still wasn't able to do it, but I kind of saw the shape of maybe what I should be doing. But it's In a little- fairness, I wasn't able to do it successfully <laughs> either. No, but you you did it two points more successfully than me. <laughs> so I think you should take, take the win. Uh, now, uh, Viceroy also wanted to know if we have played any Nuffle Tuffle. How do, how do you pronounce it? Nefertafel, I think. Nefert, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. So Nefertafel or other games in that family, the Tuffle family. And if so, how do they compare to Thud? Have you played any of them? Oh, not for years. Like the closest thing I would have played, and I don't think that it is considered a full on table game, mm. would be, um, Mill or Nine Men's Morris. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I played that when my dad taught me how to play it when I was about seven years old and I haven't played it since. And and I genuinely do avoid playing abstracts. They're mm. not a category of game that I particularly enjoy, although there are many, many people who do. How about you, Ben? Have you? I haven't actually played any official ones, I, I mean, which is to my shame because I have played a Viking in an educational film about Vikings. <laughs> um, I would share it with you listeners, but it's on a, a paid-only educational streaming platform, so I, I can't. I might be able to share a clip. I'll see if I can find one. But, uh, yeah, there's. Um, I, so I've talked about them and I've, I've known about them. But I've never actually played a real one. But I did, when I was reading about this, um, I found it interesting, and this was on Board Game Geek, they were talking about this, that it 
doesn't technically qualify as a as a table or taffle game because uh, mostly because it doesn't have a king. There's no king piece on either side, and also that because it has much more modern rules for uh, capturing. I think was the big difference. I think that was the one. And there's no fist thumping. There's no. <laughs> there's troll like yeah. club thumping. That's yeah. got to count for something. <laughs> Uh, so, no, I haven't played any, so I don't know how it compares. If you have, listener, played some Tuffle games and you've played Thud, I would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think. How similar do they feel? Do you have a preference for one or the other? Is there a particular Tuffle game, because there are many, many of them, that you would recommend? Because I kind of want to try one now. If they're anything like this, they're probably fun. Now, we, we also had some other people ask some similar questions. Uh, so, uh, Shibari Fractals, thank you. You also asked if the trolls really have the advantage. I think we've addressed that. But the best y'all on Reddit had a, a really interesting question. Do you think there's a way mathematically or more probably computer-based to kind of evaluate, as in chess, a position of the game? Yes, I suspect that there is. I suspect that I might be going to my colleagues who teach <laughs> machine learning and saying, hey, you're looking for a game for uh, for next year. Um it's interesting when you look at the way that games are evaluated. Mm. Two-player games are much more easy to evaluate, for example, than a four-player game. So mm. if you look at a lot of the work that's done by AIs and things, a lot of that work is on games like chess that are two-player games. The more pieces that you have, I believe, the more difficult it becomes. But here there are really only two pieces, right? There are yeah. two types of piece. So I think that it could be a really interesting kind of programming question. Mm. You know, how would you build something that could play thud and would it be as good as a person? Mm. That's a good question. I mean, there is, I mean, in terms of simple notation in the rule book, they do this sort of chess thing where they have letters along one side and, and numbers along the other. But of course, the, the diagonal sort of corners, which are cut off to make the octagonal board, you can't go into those. There's no spaces there. So there's some numbers in that numbering system that don't exist on the board. But yeah, I guess, I guess you could. But I mean, I don't think in chess, I think people have a very interesting idea, a lot of people about how computers play chess. Like there's this idea that they're predicting like a hundred moves ahead and they know what's going to happen. Whereas that's not really how it works, is it? Like they don't really think that far ahead. They don't think that far ahead, but they do more kind of ahead thinking than people. So right. one of the interesting things uh, when you look at how expert players think is they're actually looking for patterns and they're doing a lot of pattern recognition. Oh, this mm. is going on in that corner of the board. I've seen that before. I've seen something I can do. There's a fantastic novel called Chess by Stefan Zweig. It's like a novella. It's quite short that sort of tells the story of somebody who was an expert chess player. And I don't want to give any of it away, but mm. I, I really, that is, it's one of my favorite books. And it's certainly one of my favorite books about games. I just want to say something that I've just realized, which mm. I'm sure that other people have already recognized, which is when you're setting up the board, right? You've got this octagonal shape. So you've got four, let's call them four orthogonal sides, right? Top, mm. bottom, and the two sides. And on each of those, if you're the dwarfs, you've got your pieces on two white squares and two black squares. Mm. But all of the diagonal squares mm. are black. Oh, and I yeah. suspect that there is something there 
in terms of theory about maybe putting your trolls on white spaces so that at least at the start, while, while you've got something similar to that initial setup, it's more likely that the dwarfs will be forming diagonals on black than that they'll be forming diagonals on white. That's just yeah. occurred to me. I'm not sure what you can do with that, but at least initially you're going to have, what, two, four, six, eight pieces mm. on white, and that means you've got 24 pieces that are on black spaces yeah. as the dwarfs. Oh, I hadn't thought of that at all, but, mm. yes, that's true. It's interesting to me too that, you know, we we set up the board as if it was a square board with yeah. the flat sides. And when we say the orthogonal sides, we mean the sides that are flat on the edge uh, along the edge of the square spaces, whereas the diagonal sides sort of have that sort of jagged, like, you know, pixelated edge, <laughs> for want of a better term. Um, we could have turned it, what would that mm, be, Not 45 like, degrees? Yeah. Um, yeah. Played on a diamond-shaped board, that like it would have felt like. Yeah, it would have been weird, wouldn't it? Mm. It would have been really weird. I don't, I don't blame us for not doing that. Um, <laughs> now, the best you also asked a question that we're not equipped to answer because we're not thud masters. Um, but you wondered to continue with your chess comparison if there were openings or typical end games. And I am sure the answer is yes, but you would have to ask some much more experienced players than us. Yeah. I thought I came up with a really clever opening as the trolls mm. and Ben just saw what I was doing and kind of stomped on it straight away. <laughs> I um, mean, you still defeated me. So, I mean, you did you did all right. But but I think that there's probably strategies that you can see. So, as the trolls, you're wanting to try to increase your reach. As the dwarfs, you're probably wanting to try to build sort of a bit of a phalanx, a bit of a cluster of dwarfs. Mm. But at the same time, you probably also don't want to leave can I call them unphalanx dwarfs? Like dwarfs <laughs> yeah, that aren't dwarfs. part lone dwarfs. Scouts. Thank you. Dwarf scouts. Um, you don't want to leave kind of groups of lone dwarfs because if you're mm. concentrating in a particular area of the board, you don't want to leave kind of a cluster that a, a lone troll can come along and scoop up with their club. Yeah, yeah, because they're very, they're very vulnerable. <laughs> and that whole thing, like I've never played a game where one piece can take multiple other pieces at a time in, in quite the same way. Like in checkers, obviously, you can sort of, you know, chain up moves, but that's about the movement that you make, whereas the troll just sort of plonks down next to it, just cleans up a whole bunch of dwarfs. So it's, yeah, it's quite satisfying when you do it. It's quite terrifying when you're the dwarf player. Yeah, and if 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 I think about it, it's almost like, this is a bit of a long bow to draw, but it's almost like when you're playing Pandemic mm. and you infect a city that's in the middle of kind of an already having an outbreak oh, yeah. and so you've got that kind of things moving out or things things coming into a space that's already in danger. Yeah, that chain outbreak. Oh, yeah, it really sends a shiver down your spine. Uh, but, look, if you are an expert thud player and you know about some classic thud openings or end games, again, we'd love to hear from you um, and we'll put any answers that you send us on our website. Um, we've got a couple last questions to, to get us to the end here. When we were Siamese, great username there on Instagram asked a question, which I actually think is maybe about a different board game because they asked, who do you like playing as the most? And they said, I love playing veterinary. Now you can, <laughs> there is no veterinary in this game, but that's a good excuse to just mention that there are three or four other Discworld board games, most of which are much more thematic. Like we were talking about before, you often play in the roles of characters from the books there are varying degrees of quality and popularity, and uh, there is one where you play as various nobles and, and characters of note. 
uh, including Veterinary, the Patrician, which is uh, Discworld and Morpork. Uh, we will do an episode about that game at some point. That is a magnificent game. And one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about it is that your character is kind of secret and some of the characters have secret victory conditions or have different victory conditions mm. than other players. And so a really interesting part of that game is trying to work out who is which other character and, oh, my goodness, if you're veterinary, then you can win next turn, for example. So mm. we need to stop that. But maybe you're not. Maybe you're kind of bluffing about who you might be playing. And so. that lends it to being a game where if you haven't played it before, you are at quite a disadvantage against someone who's played it a few times. But that also, you know, you can trick yourself by thinking someone is going for some secret condition but they're not um, and you can mislead people by doing things it's, it's it is a lot of fun that game and it's it's a game designed by my friend martin wallace who now lives in australia oh. and and it's really steeped you know we were saying earlier one of the joys of thud is that it's not steeped in story but one of the joys of Unc morpork it really is that it is so steeped in the story and so very faithful, I think, to the books as well. Yeah. And interestingly, just like another game we mentioned earlier, the Battlestar Galactica game, the company that published it no longer has the license. And But what they've done is taken the rules for the game and republished it with a whole new set of narrative laid on top. Uh, I haven't played the repurposed version of Ankh-Morpork, which I think is called... It's got some... It's Nanty-Narking. Nanty-Narking, yeah. yeah. And it's kind of like all Victorian fiction characters like Sherlock Holmes and, mm. and, and I mean, some non fictional ones i think jack the ripper's in it as well but then there's like characters from uh you know hg wells and stuff like that i think i again i haven't played it but it's that would change the feel of it i imagine quite a bit i think so but you know if somebody can carry that off martin is such an experienced game designer i i believe i haven't played nanty narking either because i have one of those very precious copies of ank morpork which mm. can be really hard to get your hands on. Yeah, they are you can only get them secondhand obviously and there was a there was a collector's edition early on and uh, there's this more standard edition. We've we Pratchett does own a copy. Um so we will be playing it and, and discussing it on the podcast at some point. Uh, much like we've discussed that today. But we do have two last questions to finish us off from Sven via Discord. Hello Sven if you're listening. Sven uh, is one of our very loyal listeners from Germany. So uh, hello. And uh, he asked has Thud the board game the potential to replace Monopoly as a quintessential starting a family feud game? <laughs> I mean, I look, I'll put my, I can see you're thinking about this. I would put my card on the table. I would say no, because <laughs> it's only for two players. So you can't quite get that whole families involved in the feud kind of feel. And because there's no luck involved. I would say Thud the board game is faster than Monopoly. So Every you, game's faster than Monopoly. So you don't quite get to that stage of hating your opponent, even though you loved them before you started playing. <laughs> yes. I mean, we could do a whole other podcast, I'm sure, about our feelings about Monopoly. <laughs> I've, I've probably touched on them briefly on the podcast before. And as I have said on the podcast before, if you have not gone and looked up the history of Monopoly and its origins as the landlord's game, please do so. It's a very interesting story. But to finish this off, and this is, I want to acknowledge in advance, it's a very rude and difficult question to ask, but Sven has asked, what is your favourite board game? Oh, Sven. But oh, Sven. This is like asking a cinephile, what's your favourite film? Um, but I let's say, what is your favourite to play at the moment? What are you enjoying most at the moment? Let's make it a fairer question and then I'll try and make you pick a favourite. I'm laughing because I talked to somebody recently who said she 
asks her students to bring their favourite board game to class. And she said every time most of the students bring a game, some of the students bring no games, and one or two bring a suitcase. <laughs> We'd both be suitcase I'm people, I think. definitely a suitcase girl. Look, actually, I'll, I'll tell you a game that, I'm a little bit surprised that I like, mm. but it ties in quite nicely with this theme. It's a game called Calico, and it's a game for up to four players, and it's a game about making quilts so that your cat can sleep on them. And if you make quilts with the right sorts of patterns and the right arrangements of pieces and colours, then you will attract a cat to come and sleep on that part of the quilt, right? And Ben is making the cute small animal's face, right, because it sounds beautiful. And for about the first three or four rounds, it is beautiful. Mm. And then you realise that what you're in fact playing is a brutal <laughs> optimization, abstract game and the rest of the game is kind of people cursing at not being able to find the right piece or somebody taking exactly the piece that they want and and it becomes very, very tense. And, and so what I like about that game is that it, it really kind of subverts what you expect the game to be like mm. and becomes like Thud, right? It's really an abstract game about trying to place pieces that, that match or that don't match in particular ways. Um, but you know, it's got this beautiful artwork and every so often you get to put a cat on your quilt. Oh. Would that, would, do you think that'd make it into your suitcase of games at the moment? At the moment, it would. I don't mm. know that it's a forever game, yeah. but it's it's definitely it's a nice game. It's fairly quick to play. It's something that you can play with people who maybe haven't played a lot of games before, mm-hmm. and you might end up hating the person that you're <laughs> playing against, but only for a little while. <laughs> okay, that seems fair. I have got a go-to favourite. I mean, if you were to look at my game shelves, which Melissa is able to do because we are recording in person, which is quite a novelty for me, for us. <laughs> but uh, Melissa can see my game shelves behind me and there are more copies of various versions of this game than any other because I do love Pandemic, designed by Matt Leacock. Obviously, a game with a theme that we maybe don't really like as much as we used to. It's a collaborative game. You play together. You're all trying to find the cures to four diseases which are spreading across the world. And it's got a great, it's a very, like an ingenious mechanic, which has been, you know, copied or reiterated on a lot since where you sort of draw these cards to figure out what cities the diseases go into. But every now and then you get an epidemic, which means that the cities that have already come out of the deck get shuffled and put back on the top of the pile, which means they're more likely to come out again. And every time that happens, the game gets so much tenser. It's, it's brilliant. I love it. But there's been quite a few different versions of it. Uh, the legacy version is a great one where you play the game, but then you have a different scenario each time you play and you've got two chances to win each scenario. It's like 12 different scenarios representing each month of the year. And it tells a little, a sort of a story about, you know, this outbreak of a disease and or more than one and how you can contain it or not. And each game has consequences that permanently affect the game as you go on. This was not the first, but sort of one of the first big games in this sort of genre of legacy games which I really love. They have a downside in that a lot of them involve destroying components or writing on the board or putting stickers on things, and I can see Melissa wincing as I describe it. It's so confronting the first time you see something, say, get a pen 
and write your name on your board, right? Yeah. Or tear up this card, throw this card away. And it's, it's fascinating to see how many people kind of find reasons to not quite do that, <laughs> even though the card's never going to be used in the game, but maybe they've got a special bag, which they call, you know, the disaster bag. And that's where all of those torn up things go. So it's it's very, very confronting for people. I think the first time I met that mechanic was in an exit game, oh, a little yeah. escape room game. Yeah. They're very, very inexpensive. But still being asked to cut up a card of a game, oh my goodness, that is not what we do. But I, I think where I've landed, particularly for things like Pandemic Legacy, is that it costs you a little bit more than, you know, a standard pandemic game. But you I you, there I have not ever played like 20 games of the same game in a three or four month period before, but because each game affects the next one and then there's a scenario and most of these legacy games, one of the gimmicks of them is they have little boxes of hidden components and extra rules that you open as you go through the scenarios. You just want to keep playing it. Mm. And I've, I've played through the first one uh, twice and I'm currently revisiting the second one we, we played it during the actual pandemic and then it got a bit too real so now we've sort of during the height of it i should say it, we're still in a pandemic just to be clear just to, don't think we're out of it yet <laughs> yeah we've come back to it but i love it and i think i wasn't convinced when i first got it but a, a friend of mine said that he thought this was the best version and i've come around to agree that apart from the legacy ones the version of pandemic called fall of rome is great because it reimagines instead of these diseases you've got these like barbarian tribes trying to get to rome and destroy it and in order to win, instead of just eradicating them, or uh, you can either make a deal with them or you can push them all back to where they came from, basically. You don't kill them. You just sort of send them back home. And it's a great variation where the changes are big enough that it's quite a novelty if you've played the original. Um, so I think that's probably my favourite. And across all the versions, I've probably played more games in Pandemic than anything else. You don't kill them and the little giant is eating fish sticks, uh -uh. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. You probably do kill them and there's more of them pop up. If the idea of a collaborative game appeals to you, but you're put off by the word pandemic, and fair enough, Matt Leacock has made some other great collaborative games I just want to mention. There's the Forbidden series, Forbidden Desert is my favourite, which have a kind of pulp adventure kind of feel, and Thunderbirds, based on the TV show in which you fly around the world rescuing people from disasters. Those are suitable for kids and families, but I'd also recommend watching out for Daybreak. That's his upcoming optimistic game about saving the world from climate change, and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, look, that kind of brings us to the end. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for playing a game with me too, Ben. Oh, look, it's been a delight. If, if people want to find out more about your research or the things that you're doing, where can they go to find out about um, it? So my website, melissarogerson.com, or you can find me for the moment, at least on Twitter, um, as at Melissa in AU, short for Melissa in Australia, or on Board Game Geek as Melissa, although I haven't really put a lot about my research there. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I'm on Board Game Geek too if you want to go and spy at my collection. Collection. Um, my username there is BJ, that's B-E-E-J-A-Y, because those are my initials. Thank you again. Thank you all the listeners who sent in questions for this episode. I was so pleased to get quite a few, even though this was meant to be quite a mini episode about a bit of a niche topic. We definitely will cover the other Discworld board games, even the ones that people don't think are any good. And I should mention, because I don't think we'll probably get to it at any other point, that Trevor Truen, who designed this one, did design another Discworld board game that never ended up getting published, which was, again, quite an abstract game 
game, but with a theme of the watch and thieves trying to catch each other in, in Ankh-Morpork, but it was decided that it wasn't Discworldy enough, so they never published it. Mm. You can find pictures of it online, but uh, no copies of the rules uh, and certainly not enough to try and play it, unfortunately. Trevor, if you're out there, if you ever hear this, thank you for designing Thud. We've had a lot of fun playing it and I'm definitely going to play more of it. Absolutely. Before we head off, just a reminder that this is a little bonus extra episode because our scheduling was such that we couldn't do our regular episode for the 8th of November. So our next episode on the 25th of November will be about the novel Thud. If you're listening to this, it's definitely too late to send us any questions. Um, So hopefully you've already sent your questions in. And then on the 8th of December, we'll be doing a third in our sort of Thud trilogy where we're going to be covering the children's book Where's My Cow as featured in the novel Thud with our very special guests, the co-hosts of our sibling Pratchett podcast, The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret. Now, you do have time if you're hearing this soon after its release to send us some questions for that. So please do if you haven't already. We'd love to answer them. But until next time, remember, you can thump the table but wait until the game is over. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchetters Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Dr. Melissa Rogerson. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchettpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag PratchettPlaysThud. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.